Welcome to the SureDog Radio Network recap for UFC 290, Volkanovski versus Rodriguez. I'm your host, Ben Duffy of SureDog.com. With me, stepping in for Keith Schillen, who is on permanent vacation, is the homie Devin Tejada, host of Check the Kick on the SureDog Radio Network. Dev, how are you doing tonight? Good, man. What a... This is a hell of a card. Okay, off the cuff. Card of the year so far? In the chat, if you're if you're in the chat, welcome. Uh, obviously, let us know if this is your card of the year so far. Not just UFC, but you know, card of the year worldwide. Uh, and if not, what is your card of the year? While we wait for Dev to to be put on the spot here, I, you know, definitely up there. We we did have to pay for it with the Israel Adesanya Duplessis thing in the octagon. We'll probably get to that multiple times. Um, and can we grade the card right now, too? Can we do that? Yeah, grade it. G give the card a letter grade. It would be an A plus without the Israel and Duplessis thing. This card was good. I think it's an A plus even with it. Uh, I mean, that's uh, good. Obviously, card. it was uh, three minutes of my life. I'll never get back. Neither person came out of it looking particularly good. We now know exactly what the promo tour for that fight is going to look like, assuming it gets made. But even without that, we had maybe the best fighter in the sport doing his thing. We had a fight of the year candidate. We had, if not a winner, a knockout of the year candidate. We had, I'll wait for a sure dog associate editor, Jay Petri, the man with all the stats to back me up on this, but Four knockouts in under a minute might be a modern day record for the UFC. There were four I, fights that ended in knockout in 38 seconds or less. Just I remarkable it stuff. It, you know, I wait. I wait to hear from Jay because even the UFC's own stats, like they're wrong all the time. Like I'll, I'll wait. Just a crazy card. Like only thing we didn't really get was like a crazy club and sub. But I'm okay with everything. Like. Phenomenal fights all through from, you know, even the Rebovics fight in the beginning, the Kemwell Kirk fight wasn't a great fight. No, but for a curtain jerker, it wasn't terrible. Um, tons of crazy finishes and a lot of upsets. Everybody that everybody that won tonight looked pretty good doing it. Um, just an incredible card. Um, you know, I'm, I'm there with you with the A plus minus the Izzy thing. <laughs> and we have, and we'll get to it when we get to it. I don't want to dive deep into this now, but what off the top of my head may be the most perfect retirement of a high-level fighter in MMA history. And in a sport that gives us a million highlights, but very, very few happy endings, uh, hats off to Robbie Lawler. But again, that's five fights from now. We'll get to that when we get to it. In the main event, Alexander Volkanovsky unified the UFC featherweight title against interim champ Yair Rodriguez. Rodriguez, of course, won the interim title over Josh Emmett at the same event that Volkanovsky challenged uh, Islam Makachev for the lightweight title, made his bid for two-division glory. So it was a very brief interim phase. I mean, really, there was no reason <laughs> even to do so unless Volkanovsky beat Makachev. But that is what it is. We know how the UFC treats their belts. They went to unify the belts tonight. Volkanovski wins by uh, TKO, ground and pound, late in the third round. Talk to me about this fight. Uh, whom did you have going into this fight, and were you surprised by anything? You know, I was 
looking back to it, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty, but I am kind of surprised Volkanovski pressed his grappling as much as he did. Um, and I'm also kind of su surprised outside of the last moment how almost little success he had striking with Yair. Um, on my show, I picked Yair only because I didn't bet it and it was free for me to pick Yair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, and I thought the fight would kind of look like the whole third round up until Yair was tired and got, got cracked. Um, Yair looked good. He wasn't, he didn't fall for much of Volkanovsky's tricks on the feet. He just, you know, he died with his anti-wrestling. His, he's still a, not a good anti-wrestler and, you know, I don't want to call him having that submission off his back flukish against Josh Emmett because he set that up beautifully. However, he was way too willing of a guard player in this fight too, in my opinion. Uh, yeah, I, the, the difference in skill and in just in physical horsepower on the ground was very obvious. Anytime they hit the ground, that was what we kind of expected. Obviously Volkanovsky is an absolute powerhouse, Something that impressed me a lot about Volkanovski, and again, I I thought Volkanovski was the best pound for pound fighter in the sport coming into this. And while I would brook argument over that, I think it's less arguable that he is the most intelligent, best coach, best prepared fighter in the sport. Uh, if if you give me three months to devise a way for fighter A to beat fighter B, I want Joe Lopez and Eugene Behrman at the whiteboard. Totally, and. I wonder what part of that actually comes from Volkanovsky's, you know, from himself as well, um, because he seems to be a student of the game. His grappling tonight, I mean, he he looked incredible there. He did all the right things to win this fight. He's got all the tools to continue to win fights like this. He he might have been, you know, did he break that? Did he break that record of fighters over thirty five um, winning belts? under 170 pounds like is he now one of one of three and the only other two winners were tyron woodley like he's he's doing things at an age in a division where you know he should be fading out and he's still crushing dudes he's crushing um, dudes and he's arguably improving from fight to fight the only place where i feel like he may be slipping a tiny bit is the damage he's absorbing in his last couple fights striking you know, is Yair an absolute dynamo on the feet? Yes. Um, but in these last two fights, he kind of got clipped up more than he maybe would have used to. But who cares when you can turn to the grappling the way he did? He won the fight. Agreed. And I don't even think it's just a straight striker versus grappler thing where he needed that as a safety outlet. I was really impressed by some of the wrinkles he showed on the feet. Uh, it's hard to just call something best in something as subjective as footwork because footwork is going to have different goals for different fighters, but his footwork to serve his purposes and to shore up his shortcomings physically is as good as there is in the sport. Uh, totally. Just the fact that he, he was able to keep uh, Rodriguez mostly confined to his punches for his effective offense was brilliant because Rodriguez is, I mean, he's, arguably the most dangerous overall striker in MMA uh, pound for pound. He's definitely the fastest. Like he is faster by featherweight standards than any fighter in the entire sport is by the standards of their size. Like the people they have to fight against, but he's as fast it, as a flyweight. Yeah. Like, and his, but his really, really off the chart speed comes with his kicks. His, his 
punches are just fast by normal human standards. His kicks are sure. superhuman. So restricting him to his punches for most of his effective offense did Volkanovski a, a world of good. If you were watching this fight and you picked Volkanovski, like let alone if you bet money on Volkanovski, you probably weren't comfortable until the thing was over because Rodriguez kept flicking out that question mark kick that he loves and it kept missing by an inch, but it was just so fast. And you know that despite being fast, it lands with such power, but those were relatively few and far between. If you let Yair Rodriguez fight his fight, he's going to stay at kicking range and he's going to be throwing a, uh, just a bewildering variety of kicks out all night. He never got that chance against Volkanovski. Volkanovski has this interesting ability. And uh, I think the UFC booth alluded to it where shorter fighters aren't normally able to force their opponent to take the initiative and wait to counter, but Volkanovski manages to do it. And just his footwork was, it was always corralling Rodriguez towards the fence. It was always giving Rodriguez the choice of, backing up and you can't kick while backing up or, you know, giving up kicking range and letting Volkanovski into boxing range. And Rodriguez, for the most part, chose to back towards the fence and allow Volkanovski into boxing range. It was just absolutely brilliant. Uh, Not a ton of fainting from Volk in this fight, but the constant sw stance switch to remove that body kick was definitely pretty smart. Um, the him just really pressing that wrestling game. Like I think part of Yair getting clipped and hurt so easily because he's, I mean, he's really, really durable Yair. I think that headbutt had a lot to do with his, his durability probably, you know, coming down just a notch, but also him just wrestling when that fight was over. There was one, one image that stuck in my head. Once the fight was over, Volk gets pulled off of him. Yair sits up and he just nods his head. Like he accepted that he mm. accepted defeat in that moment. And I think, Volk just makes it not fun to fight him. I love that you said that because I brought it up on the on the preview for this, uh, you know, which I did, of course, with Keith, where he's not one of the first people you think of when you think of a miserable guy to fight. When you think of a miserable guy to fight, uh, Keith's go to example is just the Gaethje. closest. Well, Justin Gaethje is definitely <laughs> a, a hellish guy to fight. Uh, Keith's go to example is. Uh, Kamaru Usman pressing you into the fence chest on chest totally, is totally. the closest thing to hell that like this mortal totally. plane has to offer. But Volkanovsky, I pointed out that in three fights with Max Holloway, he never let him do Holloway things, mm -hmm. and he just found the perfect way to stop him. In Holloway's case, it was takedowns, which then let him use level change feints and the threat of the takedown, plus stance switches, plus leg kicks. Never let Volkanov or never let Holloway get into that mode where he's coming forward, switching stances, throwing seven strike combinations. Like you could tell that on top of just you know losing the fight and getting outlanded, Holloway was miserable. Uh, Volkanovsky finds a way to make the fight miserable for everybody, and I think it's an underrated part of his game, just an underrated part of how prepared he and his team are. But yeah, I, I love that you brought that up. Uh, a couple his, people mentioned earlier in the chat. Well, I'm sorry. Go ahead and say what you were going to say. His his ability to just be so well-rounded where, like, tit for tat, if you made these guys both kickbox, I'm pretty certain over five rounds, Yair would win that. But Volkanovski's good enough to win that. But this is an MMA. And just with everybody Volkanovski has fought, he just has the... 
his plan B is just as good as his plan A and their plan D is just as good as their plan A. Everything that they, he just does everything on such a high level. You, you can't be a specialist and beat Volk because he's a specialist everywhere. I don't know what it's going to take to beat him at 145 pounds. It's going to take someone that, um, can he do that to Ilya Taporia is my question. Well, we're not talking about uh, next matchups for these guys yet, but in my opinion, we might be about to find out. Uh, something a couple of people brought up earlier in the chat, and I didn't have time to put it on the screen, but I definitely want to talk about it. Something that hopefully doesn't get completely lost in the narrative after this is that around the midpoint of round three, there was a serious clash of heads Bad. where the crown of Volkanovsky's head hit Rodriguez's chin. And Rodriguez... I uh, took a shorter break from that than I kind of expected him to. I mean, it was egregious enough a headbutt that if Rodriguez had like gone down to the seat of his pants, I think we would have had a lengthy timeout where they were deciding about like no contest versus uh technical decision type stuff. Yeah. It was a bad clash of heads, but Rodriguez is just such a savage that there was no question of it. He's getting up. He's shaking out the cobwebs almost instantly. Obviously, there are, I mean, there are tons of collisions in a cage fight. It, it is chaos under a very minimal rule set. But there are some collisions that are more one person's fight, uh, fault than the other. And if there's a clash of heads where somebody had his head down so that the crown of his, like he's hitting somebody blind, it's probably more his fault. Like if it was anybody's fault, this was Volkanovsky's fault more than Rodriguez's. And the question to me becomes, how much did it affect the fight? I mean, I'm, okay, there's two questions to that. How much did that clash of heads have to do with the fight ending in the third round? And if it hadn't happened, how much did it have to uh, to do with the like outcome of the fight entirely? Because I I'm fine stipulating that you know what Rodriguez might have st still been a little bit rung up, and it was that much easier for Volkanovski to hurt him 90 seconds later. Oh, so, I mean, like, totally. It's 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 a crude damage, and once you get your bell rung and you see stars, it's way easier, you know, for you to take a similar shot and go down. And if you just never took that, you know, it's harder than a punch. Even when that happened, you could hear Volk from the cage side, you know, mics, whatever they're picking up in the octagon. You could hear him scream. I think he said like "fuck" or "damn it." He he, you know, he audibly cursed, or you could tell he knew what happened in that moment, and he he could he could tell that the, you know, the severity of that, even Yair like reeled back to the cage and kind of like, I don't know if he was just tired and he let his weight sink down, but I thought he was a little bit more hurt from that. Um, images of that, like Kyle Dawkins, Kevin Holland fight were like replaying in my head when that happened, where there was just a very obvious, obvious head clash. And Yair is a dude that's so durable. I don't know. I, I could see, I could see it impacting. It's it's you know, getting hit in the head with a baseball bat twice is definitely worse than getting hit with it once. <laughs> you know, like I I, I like that analogy. <laughs> uh, I mean, to me, it's certain. It, it probably helped Volkanovski end the fight in the third round. But if it doesn't happen, the way the fight's trending, Vol I mean, Volkanovski was, was yeah, maybe. But the whole thing felt like Volkanovsky starting to roll downhill anyway. 
My my wild guess is that he probably wins the fight anyway, but you hate to take that opportunity away from, again, in Rodriguez, probably the most dynamic striker in the entire UFC. So, you know, I also think part of it was fatigue, man. Like, Yair was not loving being on bottom, getting crushed from Volk like that. Volk's... Do you think Volk just in like a pure athletics competition, like how many dudes at welterweight is he stronger than? He looks strong as shit. Oh, I, I would say he's stronger than a lot of the guys at welterweight. Like he is, he's a freaking beast, man. He's, it's really cliche, but he's like one of those dudes that's just built different. Like he's short stock. He has longer, longer reach than a lot of the people that he fights or equal reach. Like he has a longer reach than Max Holloway. He's got a mm-hmm. giant, he's got he's got the head of a dude that should be six four. Yeah, he's, he's built like Donkey Kong. Like it, it's he's built for this. He is. He, he is. His cardiovascular ability, you know, even his durability at this age, his ability to switch things up. He's just so dynamic. He's so good. And I'm not even a huge Volt guy, but you you got to give respect where it's where yeah. it's got to give respect where where it's due. Uh, I'm gonna put Skynet's quote up here, like, uh, and I always appreciate. Uh, Skynet's contributions to the chat here, but this is one that I'm going to disagree with. If he was hurt, he would have taken time. The entire experience of purposeful and inadvertent fouls in the UFC tells us the opposite. Fighters never take enough time, regardless of how hurt they are. The fighters who take time are the ones who are tired and want to rest. And even in those cases, it's not always and it's not as long as they could. And it's to the point now where, where the ref will instantly tell the foul fighter, you have five minutes, take your time. Sure. And they're, but you know, and I don't blame the fighters necessarily. It's on their corner to tell them, Hey, chill out. But, uh, they're always, they're just full of adrenaline and they want to get back to kicking this guy's ass, even if they were losing. And 99% of the time, I don't even think I'm a, Okay, that's probably an exaggeration. 95% of the time, even if a fighter was compromised by whatever the inadvertent foul was, like a knee to the head, a clash of heads, a groin foul, they're going back in in under a minute when they would have been well served by taking a couple of minutes. Uh, so, yeah, yeah I, I, I disagree with that one. Fighters almost never take enough time. Well, you pair that, you know pair that along with this being Yair's that round being Yair's best round where he had the most success. Why wouldn't he want to, you know, why wouldn't he be ready to just hop back in and, and try to get back to the success that he was having? Um, the head, the, the headbutt definitely has an impact, but there's no way for us to know whether, you know, it was yeah. 75% of the reason why the finish came or 20% or zero. Yeah. But it'll, it'll give something to argue for Yair. It will. It'll give something to argue for Yair. And with that, unless you have anything else to say about the fight itself, I'm kind of interested in what you think about what is next for these two guys. Uh, any other thoughts on the uh, on the fight overall? Um, Volkanovski's really good. <laughs> that's 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 Volkanovski's really good. He's the he's a mother effer. <laughs> if if the UFC still gave their pay per view cards taglines like you know. UFC 74 or 61 bitter rivals UFC you know, like this would That's be UFC <laughs> yeah UFC 290 Volkanovski is really good uh what do you do next with this guy 
Alexander Volkanovsky, you're defending now undisputed champ. Okay, sorry, I do need one more rant. Bruce Buffer introduces these two guys. He introduces Yair Rodriguez, the interim featherweight champion. He introduces Alexander Volkanovsky, the reigning, defending, undisputed record scratch. No, that is not undisputed. Not if, if there's you, an interim. If, if you're having a unification <laughs> bout. It is literally the opposite of undisputed. It's being disputed right now. How can you say this word dozens of times, maybe over a hundred times in your professional career and not know what the fuck it means. It's bad enough that this guy can't pronounce Derek Cleary's name after saying it hundreds of times. Clearly. 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 He doesn't give a shit about doing his job properly. Like 90% of your job is pronouncing people's names right. The other 10% is wearing tuxedos that look like they were made for my grandma's couch and understanding the basic mechanics of how the sport works. Like reading off the three cards in a split decision in the right order. So, you know, that there's a, a, a tie breaking scorecard read last, not saying undisputed when it's literally not the undisputed champ. It is disputed. The dispute is being settled tonight. It's maddening. Anyway, he's a funny, I, he's, he's, he's so beloved too. Like we're going to miss him when he's gone, but come on, Bruce. Like, care a little. Oh, boss, he did beat someone up at, at a bar once. Uh, apparently, the guy didn't know to hit him in his six-pack implants. Uh, <clears throat> okay, I'm sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. What do you do next with Alexander Volkanovsky, perhaps the best fighter in the sport? So I did not listen to the where they put the mic in his face. I, I did not listen to that. I came and got ready for this right away. Mm -hmm. um, who did he call for? Because I, 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 I totally missed that. The fight ended and I came and sat down here. Yeah, I don't, you know, I, I don't know either. Like I, I cut straight to this. I kind of let uh, Twitter and I let people in the Sherdog editorial slack. Let me know what's going on in the post fight interviews and at the post fight press conference. Uh, Jade Bunk, one of our in real life friends, since he actually ran into Keith on one of Keith's very frequent, apparently vacations, says, I'd like to see him versus Aljo if Aljo moves up. You know what? If Aljamain Sterling moves up and challenges Volkanovski, Volkanovski is probably going to be like a minus 400 favorite. And I would still almost rather see that in some ways, just as a, like a fresh idea than, you know, any of the, the contenders we're about to talk about. He, he could go and, and try to rematch Islam. That is ob an obvious possibility. A lot of people probably want that. Um, it does seem like for whatever reason, the fan base has a distaste toward Islam after that fight. And I feel like the, the fans want that one back for Volk, maybe even more than he does himself. Um, another option could be that Aljamain option. Totally could be that Aljamain option. Shoot him up there. Aljamain was in the crowd. Aljamain seems like a dude that plays his cards pretty right. I don't know how willing and ready Aljamain is probably going to want to be to want to come up and, and fight Volk after the way he looked tonight. I think that's a really bad fight for Aljo. Um, for me, I think quite frankly, Taporia would probably be make the most sense. Um, just because I think it's a fun matchup. I think him versus Taporia would probably be more fun than him versus Aljamain and him versus Islam, just based off the style. Um, Taporia is a really, really good grappler, grappler, a small stocky powerhouse dude with really good boxing. 
Um, I just think it'd be a more fun fight in general, better for viewing. Um, I'm going to go with Toporia. And plus Spain, you know, like that's a huge market. Yeah. And hell, <laughs> by, by the time, <laughs> maybe they'll throw it in Mexico, but the way their they're, they're Mexican champs and contenders are, are going down, uh, Toporia might be the closest thing they have to like a Mexican contender by the you time. You speak Spanish? Like, do you speak Spanish? No, yeah, no. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> For Toporia, do you speak Spanish? Yeah. Okay, get them in Mexico. Yeah. Uh, I'm actually with you here. If, you can't account for something like another champ, like leaving his division and, uh, you know, and, and challenging some, something like, uh, like Aljo, but men's featherweight, same as welterweight had kind of the, the fleet of undefeated prospects moving up the, the rankings. Like, of course, in at welterweight, it was Shamayev, Rachmanov, Brady, and in his own way, Jack de la Madalena, who should have fought tonight at, Featherweight, it's, you know, Ilya Teporia, Movsar Evloyev, Jack Shore, and Bryce Mitchell. Shore and Mitchell have now already lost. And, I mean, it's not like they go all the way to the back of the line, but some of the shine is off. You're left with Teporia and Evloyev. Of those two, Teporia is by far the more in, uh, interesting matchup for Volkanovsky. And he's the one who's proven more. He has, uh, you know, some top 10 wins. He maybe a borderline top five win in, in the form of Emmett. So I'm with you. Uh, give me Taporia versus uh, Volkanovsky, but I, I can feel what uh, UFC chief operations officer, Hunter Campbell, previously their chief legal counsel must've been feeling when he kind of said to Volkanovsky tonight, we'll figure out what's next for you. Cause it, it's getting to that point. Yeah, and I understand Volk said that he would like to go up and challenge for the bell and then fight fight the, the winner of the BMF title, you know, title fight thingy here in a few weeks. I think that could make some sense for Volk too. Um, maybe go go and get a big name and fight the winner of Justin Gaethje, Dustin Poirier number two. I think that'd be cool for him, but also I, I kind of want to see him stay in his lane and maybe get one more scalp possibly at 45 and then go up and, and do whatever he does or, or maybe – I mean, if he beats Taporia, he might as well just walk away with take his take his toys home and walk away and be one of the greatest MMA fighters we've ever seen. That's seriously, uh, it's it's rare that we get to the point with a fighter who is still apparently in or close to their prime, where we're reduced to talking about fantasy matchups to yeah. even have anything interesting to do with them. Totally, and it, it's. <laughs> There's always the outside chance we get surprised by that. I, I, a year ago or a little over a year ago, uh, Alex Pereira seemed like, oh, well, this is just something interesting to do with Israel Adesanya before he has to decide whether to retire on top, try 205 again, or do like, what the hell do we do with this guy? And all of a sudden, we got drama out of that. So y you never know in a sport as unpredictable as this, but sure. Volkanovski is entering that range for sure and if he loses if he takes another fight and loses that fight you know he's going to be credited with an automatic rematch no matter who that person is assuming he wants it yeah absolutely absolutely and i'm not i'm not normally a fan of immediate title rematches we're about to talk about a a likely situation for one in a few seconds here but the the few cases where i think they're okay is when there was any kind of controversy in the fight, or you're talking about one of the most dominant fighters in the sport 
he certainly is that at least uh let's oh one one last question and here just uh chris Wiz says let volk pass featherweight kingpin jose aldo who won eight featherweight title fights he's there already in my opinion man and is volk the 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 goat featherweight if not what does he have to do to become it i need to actually sit down and put some thought into this and i usually reserve my time to do a lot of thinking about this because my thinking involves like drawing on a piece of paper usually or just or slamming stuff into an excel spreadsheet and like sorting it because there are days when i think jose aldo is the greatest fighter of all time period regardless of weight class so in my mind, I can't have Volkanovski pass him on the featherweight list all time if without adjusting a couple of the things in my mind. Uh, Volkanovski might be the greatest featherweight of all time right now. I don't know, ma'am. Uh, if not, all he needs is more reps. Just beat, beat the best available guy one or two more yeah. times. That That's it. And he's beating these dudes in 2023, not in WEC. That also for me personally i think caliber of competition you know like beating dudes today holding a belt today means more than it did 10 years ago people are just better well i can't agree to that because that would make all of my incredibly encyclopedic <laughs> knowledge of historical mma less valuable sure so i i have to argue that like it's igor vovchanson <laughs> is, is still like you know one of the greatest heavyweights of all time because of shit he did in 1998 sorry man like <laughs> it's subjective <laughs> it's, i still it's, think silva's the best middleweight it's subjective but but i'm i'm probably wrong anyway let's move on to our co-main event since we've now talked about the main event for a solid half hour uh in our co-main event we had a flyweight title fight between defending champ brandon moreno and challenger Alessandro Pantoja. Going into this one, I, I, obviously the, the specifics of the style matchup were very different, but I felt a little bit about it the way I did about Volkanovski versus Rodriguez, where I don't know if Rodriguez is the second best featherweight in the division, but he might be the most dangerous challenger, just in terms of fight changing offense specific matchups with the champ that he's challenging. I feel the same way about, about Pantoja because Pantoja obviously big narrative coming in is that he already had two wins over Moreno, even if they were much earlier in their careers. And then Pantoja as one of the last true like back control specialists in high level MMA offered something that Moreno might have a, a weakness for. I picked Moreno to win this fight and we got a super close fight out of it. I scored this fight for Moreno, but I'm not happy about it. Uh, and I think I'm very much in the minority. When I last checked MMA decisions, not all the scorecards were in. I'm interested to see how much of an Island I'm on here. Oh, please don't, don't hurt me. MMA decisions. I'm not mad at any scorecard. You son, can have anything. Son of a, Okay, this isn't too bad. I, I mean, it's bad. There's like 25 scorecards for Pantoja and five for Moreno, but I'm on an island with uh, Alex Lee from MMA Fighting. He's a homie. What up, Alex? Uh, Casey Lydon. Uh, so 
I'm I'm comfortable with like Casey and me like fighting the 25 people that uh, scored it for Pantoja. Like we'll take you guys. Yeah, I'm I'm not too mad about it. Uh, how did you can, score the fight, guys? I stopped scoring this fight after the third round, and I know I'm not supposed to, but this fight was just so crazy. I set my phone down and I was standing okay. up. Okay, I look pride oh. scoring style. Who do you feel like won the fight? You know. I oh, think three different pride. judges. There you pride go. Pride. pride never dies. Yeah. Um, it just depends on how you, and even though there is set scoring criteria, it just depends on what that judge favors in that moment. Like there was, was it the fifth round where, I mean, Moreno was snapping Pantoja's head back over and over again with the jab, clipping him up on the feet. And then he would get his back taken and get a body triangle sunken in. And Pantoja would maybe have control for two minutes in that moment, um, in that round. And it just depends on how, you know, where is the back control and the, the you know, five to ten clubbing shots from Pantoja while he had his back. Does that weigh more than him getting his head snapped back by like seven or eight jabs from Moreno or Moreno clipping him up in the pocket? Um, what really stood out to me in this fight was Pantoja's durability. Like he was getting his bell rung all over the place. Um, and I don't think Moreno sm fought the smartest fight here. I think, I don't think he should have been in the pocket as much with Pantoja. His jab from distance, his distance striking, his one, two was on fire. He could have just clipped up Pantoja with that jab. Every time Pantoja wanted to crush the pocket, maybe hit him with a two down the pipe and just circle out. And I was really surprised I didn't see any offensive wrestling. When Pantoja would close the distance, Moreno has an incredibly fast blast double, or he'll even get that double underhook, you know, and double underhook, shift an angle and dump people down. Like, I I don't think Moreno fought the best fight he could fight here. I walked away from this fight thinking that Pantoja probably won, but I still think Moreno's probably a little bit better. Well, I it's... Uh, it's notable that you say that since it's very likely we're going to get a, a rematch. Yeah, I, there's plenty of healthy disagreement here, and I've been throwing uh, comments up the whole time you were kind of breaking that down. Uh, to me, it came down to I gave Moreno the fifth round. Me and too. I think I think I'm okay. You're with me, but I think that we're probably very much in the minority there. And here's the thing. And if you're a regular on the show, go ahead and either roll your eyes or stop your ears because you've heard me say this a million times. But, uh, you know, last summer I went and took the Association of Boxing Commission's uh, course on refereeing and judging. I took the same one that working refs take. In fact, you know, Kerry Hatley and uh, Jacob Montalvo were in my class. Kevin McDonald was teaching it, uh, you know, and I was in there with 50 people that wanted to become refs and judges, seven or eight that were working refs and judges and me, the lone media guy. Uh, but what was hammered home was, you know, the, these rounds are, are scored on, you know, damage, dominance and duration. Yep. That fifth round, the first over half of round was conducted on the feet. And I thought Moreno was getting substantially the better of it. Like I, I didn't look at any strike counts. I have the feeling that, in terms of just the clicker strike count, Moreno outlanded Pantoja and 
the ones he landed were harder. He was definitely winning oh, the striking battle. Back. Yeah, he was, he was winning the striking battle. Pantoja got a takedown a little after the midpoint of the round. So for probably about two minutes of the round, Pantoja had uh, back control. Standing the whole time. Like the fight never actually hit the ground in that fifth round. And the criteria is, you know, what is effective grappling if you are taking someone's back to just negate getting punched in the face over and over yeah. again? And I mean, back control and mount are inherently uh, dominant positions. Like being on top in your opponent's guard is not an inherently dominant position. Like, and let, like if you're on top in your opponent's guard, unless you're advancing position or you're doing damage, you're not winning the round. But, you know, Taking, you know, taking back control, locking up a body triangle, that is a dominant position, but. That doesn't were, outweigh getting were, your head well, snapped back over well, and over. In again. my mind, he, land, he, he landed relatively few uh, significant strikes from that position. Uh, he fished for a couple of submissions, but never had anything locked in that actually threatened to finish the fight. So it just didn't outweigh the first half of the round yeah. where uh, Moreno was clearly getting the better of the striking. That that was in my opinion, and that swung the fight for me. I had it two rounds to two going into the last round. So I scored the fight for Moreno, and I knew I was going to be very much in the minority. But yeah, I, I I don't hate my scorecard, and I definitely I don't like I'm not judging anybody that had it for Pantoja either. Like I understand why he won. Yeah. yeah, you remove that body triangle, and if he was just, you know, had Moreno's back, holding him up against the cage, and stomping on his feet, and kneeing him in the body, and holding position, um, the ref might have broke that up. And that's kind of what I look at, where I'm like, okay, you know, what what is the what is causing the true what is causing the true damage here, and what is is one guy trying to win this fight, or is one guy trying to stop? having damage piled up on him. And that's kind of what that fifth round back take looked like for me. Um, and good on Pantoja because it worked. It won him the fight. Like that's, and three different judges might've scored this. We might, you put three different judges in there and you're going to have three different scorecards. This fight was that close. Um, this, I well, think Pantoja fought the best fight he could. And I just don't think Moreno did it. And it's interesting. I thought the first round was very clearly a Pantoja round. Like he took Moreno down, busted him up with an elbow, like, you know, cut him wide open. I thought the second round was very clearly a Moreno round. Like he was just, uh, his really? left hand was money that whole round. But yeah, any way you want to score the last three rounds, I'm not mad at you. Like I thought round four was pretty clearly a Pantoja round, but I could even see the argument for Moreno there. Uh, three and five complete coin flips based on what you value. So it's another, it's yet another case. And we have one of them seemingly every week on these recaps where a close fight is not always a, a robbery. A split decision is not always a robbery. Uh, and I say that as a guy who, who's, you know, pick on this one was frozen out by the actual, by the actual judges. Are we assuming we get a rematch immediately? Oh man. Um, here's the thing is if we don't, do we see Pantoja fight Amir Albazi? Cause that's really who's the next, or he's already beat Roy Val. He does have that loss to Figueredo. However, Figueredo is, doesn't know what division he seems to be fighting in. And he's lost to, to Moreno, got finished by Moreno last time out. 
do we want to watch this again? Or do we want to watch him fight Amir Albazi? If you ask me, I would rather watch this five times than Pantoja fight Albazi. If it's down to what I would find entertaining, I'd love to see these guys fight again five months from now. Absolutely. Because each one of these guys has things that he can take back to the drawing board, that his coaches can take back to the whiteboard. And uh, I'd love to see the adjustments they make. It was the... The rivalry between Moreno and Figueredo, even though it put a division on hold for almost two full years, it was so it, awesome. It well, it gave us four fights that ranged from good to all time good. Like there wasn't a single fight there that was less than like a B plus, and not so much Figueredo because he was a little older and more of a finished product. But it made a better fighter out of Moreno. I think it also took away some of his durability. It might have. I I, I mean, he took. I mean, talk about hell. Someone just hands you a calendar and says, you're you're fighting Davis and Figueredo four times in the next two years. Like, yeah, I, I'm sure it's you know, Pantoja and Kai Carfronts, all yeah. these dudes that are. <laughs> yeah, I'm, it probably took premature tread off his tires. But in terms of developing his skills and his mental approach, it helped him. Uh, I can't remember who it may even have been you in the Sherdog Slack who commented on how poised moreno was tonight yeah it was you i was like dude he's fought davis and figueredo four times nothing short of somebody pulling a gun out of like the back of his trunks is going to fluster uh brandon moreno in the cage his composure that was the word i used his composure where he he got dropped he was winning the first round until he got cracked Mm -hmm. but when he went to his back i I, when whenever i see a fighter get dropped the immediate thing i focus on is their eyes and I'm like, what are they looking like? Are they do they look like they're in despair? Or is and I knew I was like, oh, this is not it for Moreno. He gets hurt all the time. Like, this is just his thing. Mm-hmm. Um, he's just one of those dudes, and he's gonna take this back to the he's great at rematches. He has close fights, and then he he builds and builds and builds. If you are Moreno, a rematch would favor you probably just because Pantoja's 33 as well. Mm-hmm. And every time, you know, 33. At flyweight, and like Pantoja has been in wars too. But, yeah, both yeah. of these dudes are, are. I mean, these dudes are like just both of them are just battle axes. They're just war hammers. They these both of these dudes mm-hmm. are just killers. I, at the end of this fight, all I did was say flyweight is really awesome. Flyweight is really awesome. It is one of those divisions where you can take any two top fifteen fighters. Like you just throw all the names in the hat, draw any two names. You probably have a great matchup. Uh, what, just one last thing about that first round, because you mentioned the composure. So Pantoja hurts Moreno. They go to the ground, and for about 15 seconds, it is a wild scramble. And you can almost see Moreno just go, okay, I've got to stop this because th- like this kind of just two cats in a bag, Tasmanian devil, like Looney Tunes scramble, is Pantoja's wheelhouse more than mine, and I'm going to end up getting choked if we keep doing this. So he concedes bottom position and kind of goes to a more settled guard game, survives the round. He lost the round, but at least he didn't get finished. Uh, Yeah. Uh, I'm leaving Skynet's comment up here. We need Keith for some non-delusional takes. I'm fine being called delusional, you know, and I am fine freely conceding that 
basically everybody I have on the show with me, whether it be Keith, whether it be Dev, Lev, uh, hell, my kid Adam uh, is probably a better fight analyst than me. But all of your argument goes out the window when you say go look at fight metric. No, don't go look at fight, fight no. metric. Trust the fifth Ryan round, Ross. the fight metric had the UFC stats had the fifth round right when Pantoja got that back take at 18 and 18 for significant strikes. And if yep. you use significant, if you use any of the fight metric statistics after a fight to argue whether you believe someone won or lost, you're it's a losing battle, in my opinion. Yeah, because I mean, keep in mind, fight that, judges don't get that. There, there's not some like, well, ironically, for someone named Skynet, there's not some world controlling AI doing those fight stats. It is a bunch of dudes looking at tape, and those dudes are not even as smart as me. Or so, Skynet anyway, himself. Or well, <laughs> Skynet it, became self-aware, and yeah, well, yeah, true that. Um, um, any other thoughts about this? I mean, we're probably getting a rematch. Sounds no, like this, we're all at least basically okay with it. This fight was this fight was incredible, and it was literally just like two stray cats in the dumpster behind Denny's brawling over chicken bones. And I'm just totally down to watch it again. This was great. Best fight of the year. Um, yeah, I, it's definitely at least on my fight of the year list right okay. now. I'd have to look at what else is on there. But just the fact that we've had this long an argument about who even won the damn thing, it, it like says a lot. And we uh, still don't. And I don't have a definitive answer. No, <laughs> no. Uh, Third from the top at UFC 290 was a probable title eliminator in the middleweight division between former champ Robert Whitaker and red hot rising contender Drikas Duplessis. Duplessis wins by a second round TKO. Uh, he won the first round. And then in the second round, where one might have figured out that, or I mean, one might have assumed that Whitaker would buckle down and turn into Robert Whitaker. That never happened. Duplessis just kept rolling downhill, gets a pretty brutal TKO in the middle of the round, just with uh, a hail of punches on, uh, on the former champ. And of all the fights on this card, 14 fights on this card. This is the one oh, dude. That, that was most surprising to me yeah. uh, because coming into this, my thought was, okay, Duplessis is 5-0 and in the UFC, but at least two of those five fights, he was losing until he snatched a win out of nowhere. He is incredibly strong. He's a plus athlete. He hits like a ton of bricks, but just his, his deficiencies defensively on the feet are going to make him a sitting duck for Robert Whitaker. Uh, Whitaker's going to just... Like, Whitaker's going to pot shot this guy and either get a really one-sided decision where there's like a 10-8 round somewhere in there or just finish him because uh, Duplessis gas tank is also a question mark and Whitaker's really isn't. And I could not have been more wrong. Uh, Whitaker looked mostly like himself, but Duplessis caught him clean. Duplessis took him down with the women's flyweight headlock throw in the first round. And, and it worked. It worked. <laughs> and in the second round, uh, he keeps nailing Whitaker. Whitaker's normally incredible recoverability uh, is not there because Whitaker's always been hittable. He's not Lyoto Machida or Prime Israel 
or uh, prime uh, Anderson Silva, where it seems like nobody can even lay a finger on him. Like, you know, Whitaker has always taken his share of shots and he's just had great recoverability, good at rolling with punches, parrying punches and not taking his opponent's best shot. But he took a couple of Duplessis best shots here and he was not up to the task. He got hurt. Duplessis saw that he was hurt, gave chase, accurate follow-up punches. The whole thing's over. Uncontroversial TKO win over the second best middleweight in the world. Uh, well, he's not I mean, the second best anymore. Crazy. Duplessis. <laughs> like, I, I, and I yeah, still, I, like, and I still don't know. And this goes for the whole entire chat. Like, besides winning, I still don't know what Duplessis good at. Oh, I, I, this is going <laughs> to sound insulting and it's not meant to be, but Drickus Duplessis is the best terrible fighter in the UFC. He's like, the best for the, terrible for, fighter outside of heavyweight ever. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I would have to think about that, but he's the best terrible fighter outside of heavyweight in the sport right now, for sure. Like for a long time, I would have said it was Paul Craig. Like Paul Craig is terrible at almost everything and yet finds a way to beat like more skilled, more athletic fighters over and over again. But in Duplessis case, he like, looked good tonight. He looked great. And with he did everything with, right with Craig, it usually <laughs> involves his opponents either getting tired or making a mistake here. Duplessis. Even his defense was on point. Even his defense was on point. So we have to entertain the possibility. And I mean, it's not like it's an either or. It's somewhere in between. But on one end of this continuum, here, let me get it into the camera. On one end of this continuum, uh, Robert Whitaker is shot. This is the beginning of the end. Three years from now, we're going to be talking about him like Robbie Lawler or BJ Penn when he's lost like seven of eight fights. Or on the other end of the continuum, Drickus Duplessis is just improving remarkably from fight to fight. And it's harder for us to see because he's also moving up in competition at the same time. I don't know where in between those two we are. Yeah. I don't know if, and Robert Whitaker did look, I think he didn't expect Duplessis to be as big as he okay. was. Number one. Skynet. I got to ding you again. Drick is Duplessis, former KSW welterweight champ. He's, he was a welterweight for pretty much the same portion of his career that, yeah. that Whitaker was like, He's bulked up a little more and he's taller, but that's the whole thing. A guy that's a former welterweight shouldn't be that strong because it's not even like he turned himself into William Knight. It's, it's not like he packed too much muscle onto his frame. No, he just has that Volkanovsky type strength where like yeah. a dude, he, he looks big. He looks fit. He looks athletic, but like there's just something different. Um, Robert, how many times has Robert Whitaker been dropped with a jab? That seems to be a shot that just hurts Whitaker. Um, he was also, you know, kind of throwing his patented, you know, one, two, and then cut the angle and try to throw the high kick up over the top. He couldn't find that. Um, Duplessis was blocking or a lot of those shots, he'd kind of tuck his shoulder and they'd hit the shoulder. Um, and he crushed Whitaker with that elbow in the first round on top. Even in the second round, he, he dropped him with the jab. And he was throwing a he was throwing a hook behind it, and he said he couldn't see the he couldn't see the punch. He threw the jab, kind of got off of his you know, kind of lost his balance and got ahead of himself a little bit. Looked back, Whitaker was on the ground. He actually seems like a really cerebral dude. In that finishing sequence, Whitaker was shelled up. He he threw one hook right to the body, and that's like that's what really caused Whitaker to go to that knee. 
and then Duplessis was throwing shots around Whitaker's guard. Mm-hmm. Like, this was actually a badass freaking performance from Duplessis. Um, he literally got the head and arm throw on Robert Whitaker and knocked him out. Like, he he did. He, you're not supposed to do this. Like, this is wrong. And it's great. Like It's wrong? I, I feel like I'm in a, a different uh, a different timeline. Again, like I don't want to take anything away from Drickus Duplessis. But middleweight is in a weird place. It's a wide open division. A lot of the usual suspect contenders have either knocked each other off or are aging out. But winning six fights in a row in any division in the UFC is an accomplishment. There's just oh, two. Uh, and Duplessis again. I, I threw up that continuum earlier. I have the feeling, like we'll talk about matchmaking in a moment, and Whitaker's probably going to have to take a step back from this and maybe fight a non-top four fighter for the first time in eight years. Uh, maybe he'll just have to fight a top ten fighter. But I think we're going to find out that Whitaker has plenty left in the tank, and that this was kind of him maybe regressing slightly, meeting in the middle with Duplessis really quietly continuing to improve. And it may be a a kind of Marvin Vittori type thing where Vittori comes off as such kind of a goofball meathead on the mic that it it overshadows that he's actually pretty smart and well-prepared in the cage. Like, I, I think it may end up being a thing like that. And... I am inclined to skip over the entire Duplessis versus Adesanya confrontation in the cage. Neither guy came out of it looking good. We've already had the uh, symposium on African geopolitics of the last 200 years in the chat here. And, you know, obviously, you know, this is where those great questions of our age are are settled. I I, I don't really have anything to say about it, about the actual content of it. It was it was gross. The, I do want to go on two rants about this. So, if if you hate Ben's rants, I'm sorry. Rant number one: for a guy that the UFC clearly sees as a superstar and is one of the biggest stars in the UFC, and clearly fancies himself a big talker, Israel Adesanya is absolutely terrible at trash talk. Israel Adesanya talks trash like a. 13 year old in the discord channel or you know some kid playing halo on xbox live 15 years ago like he is he is so bad at coming up with anything interesting to say extemporaneously like when there's someone in front of him and is being ad-libbed if you just if somebody like lobs you know a a ball at him to hit back he's just gonna go go crazy on it he always goes straight to straight to just like racist homophobic ableist shit it it it, seriously it's like a 13 year old on xbox live it's just the lamest thing ever uh boss saying it's yeah it's like josh koscheck like he seems like this cool cocky guy and then when he's put on the spot it's all of a sudden like english is a second language it's it's absolutely miserable and it's pretty funny out of the guy that i mean israel adesanya has very famously pointed at press row i didn't happen to be on press row that day but plenty of people i know and respect were saying saying just remember i could do your job and you couldn't do mine no he could not israel adesanya could not do my job 
any more than I could do his. Uh, like, yeah, and one little if, if one little disagreement, he hears something he doesn't like to hear, and he, he I mean that. Sh and if you are a true Israel Adesanya fan, and uh, you know, in my position and our position, we're not really supposed to have favorite fighters. Um, but just uh, you know, person, <laughs> yeah. But personality wise, like this should give you a little tiny taste of who Israel Adesanya might really be de deep down inside in his heart of hearts. And it's kind of ugly. Like this was pretty bad. You're the biggest, like you're, you are one of the biggest stars in the UFC and you just dropping the end bomb like over and over again, over and over again on pay-per-view, like not even including the shirt he was wearing. Like that was just terrible. But, um, well, I mean, I, I kind of like the shirt. Anyway, like you just gotta, you know, you're not, you had all the opportunity in the world. Everybody in, in the MMA sphere thought Drikas Duplessis was the bad guy bringing up the African thing, you know, prior to this whole entire interaction in the octagon. But I'm walking away thinking Izzy's the bad guy now. And he's between the Sean Strickland incident with, at the press conference. And now this, like, he's. You know, mentally, I don't know where he's at, man. Yeah, I and more than anything, he he's a competitor. I I don't think it's going to get under. Like, I I threw Alan's comments up there. We know why Drickus Duplessis is riding this whole "I'm the real African" thing. We know why he's doing it. Whether you want, it worked, it clearly worked. Look, exactly. <laughs> whether whether you want to defend it and justify it or not doesn't matter because he's not expounding on African history. He is trying to piss off Israel Adesanya and it's working like a charm. Uh, but the thing I will say is leaving aside all of that, I love that he and Cameron Simon, his teammate have stayed in South Africa for their training because it makes me super happy when uh, regional fighters, whether they're in North America, anywhere near me or worldwide, find and develop training bases where they are. Uh, for one thing, I think it creates a rising tide that lifts all boats. Think of how different Mexican MMA would be right now if Alexa Grasso and Brandon Moreno had both just moved to Vegas for training four years ago. Sure, it, it would it would be um like and all these small camps like Volk even came from a small camp as well before you know before, before he joined forces with Eugene Behrman and he still sure. splits his camps up sure um Max Holloway is another one of those dudes that comes from like a tiny camp that just kind of mm -hmm. doing their own thing and right. and this is good for South African MMA and African MMA in general mm -hmm. um did you hear that story there at the Palms and how they were um, Duplessis and Simon were speaking their their um, native language, and the owner of the Palms, I guess, is also South African and, and upgraded them to a presidential suite. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It just it 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 does great things for regional MMA scenes, and it's better for the sport than if we just get stuck in this homogenous situation where the best fighters in the world all move to. Las Vegas or Southern California or Arizona or, or Florida. Florida to train at one of eight or 10 mega camps. Sure. Uh, I mean, there's a reason why in my mind, as 
a fan of MMA from kind of like the early 2000s think, oh man, Korean fighters are crazy. It's not because Koreans are crazy. It's because the camps in Korea train people certain like totally totally like a shoot look a shoot box for example yeah yeah that that diversity is what makes the sport great and interesting to a you know to a a a great extent yeah and and i gotta throw one more comment up here that i that i saw yeah uh 30c west doing the same thing as connor did attacking khabib for training in the states or andraj de gadelia absolutely perfect example of that and it's funny because they never actually ended up fighting Connor like blowing up Rafael dos Anjos for moving to LA and saying, yeah, all these Brazilian guys like carry in the Brazilian flag, but they don't actually want to live in Brazil. They all want to move to LA and like live where it's nice and like train in at like King's MMA and shit. Dude, RDA was so mad about that. I think he was so mad about that, that he like, like ripped himself in half, like Rumpelstiltskin. And that was just one more injury layoff for RDA, which is why that fight never happened. Uh, no, I, I loved it as trash talk, you know, even if like it was like really, you know, uh, anyway, this worked out perfectly for the UFC as well. Another thing to keep it to, to probably, you know, think about is the PFL's major push into Africa with with uh, Francis Ngannou and that whole debacle that they have going on. Um, I, I think the UFC is really trying to show for Duplessis into this title, into this title picture. So they can kind of try to corner that market before PFL does. So this is kind of working out perfectly for the UFC as well. Um, heated rivalry that hasn't even had a fight yet. And now that Pajero has gone Izzy needs a rival. And another thing too, it's Izzy's probably happy about this because if not, we'd be probably thinking he should move to 205 and based off of his 205, you know, his, his attempt to go at 205 and who's up there right now. Um, Izzy is probably better off fighting Duplessis than any of the 205 contenders anyway. That's quite valid. Boss, our original ROG, our guy whose name is over the uh, Sheldon and Duffy show Hall of Fame, says, God, I wish Tail would have won. I would agree, except for the fact that he melted the whole test beaker afterwards. And I am never in favor of an alternate history that ends with a title vacated in the lab. Otherwise, 100% on, on, uh, you know, on the same page with you. That's the top three fights of this card. For the most part, the other 11 are going to go pretty quick. Quite literally. Uh, and uh, <laughs> Many of them did. We already said. And uh, Jay Petri. And again, if you don't read Jay Petri's column, Fight Facts, after every UFC bellator ksw and one championship event you're missing out because if you're in this chat there is some part of you that secretly wants to be the smartest guy in the bar or the one that your friends text to ask you about fights and reading jay petri will make you the smartest uh the smartest person you know in terms of mma uh he brings you the hardcore statistical fireworks but he has confirmed for me that it is a modern era record you know not going back to like the tournaments uh single digit uh ufcs but yeah uh four ko's in 38 seconds or less are very much a a record for the modern era uh anyway let's go down because there was other interesting stuff that happened but generally speaking lower stakes lower drama and much shorter fights uh second fight on the main card dan hooker versus jalen turner at a 158 pound catch weight right out of the bat the laws of physics in the known universe, one, 
Jalen Turner zero as one of the most visibly oversized fighters in MMA history for his weight class. Jalen Turner finally missed weight in the UFC. Uh, they contested the fight at uh, a catch weight. Hooker uh, wins a split decision. How did you score this, Dev? And how did you score uh, this fight, folks, in the chat? Uh, Hooker versus Turner, how did you score this one? I'm not mad at the scoring. I, I think it is is pretty valid. The second round was going Turner's way until he got clipped up and hurt. And Hooker against the cage when he is, you know, throwing volume at people, he showed that, you know, like you look at his fight with Dustin Poirier, he could be he could be a problem there. He looked Hooker looked better than I expected, but Turner also looked like a dude that missed weight. That was my biggest takeaway from this fight. Yeah. I picked Turner in this one, and obviously I'm doing that on like the Sunday night before fight week. I didn't know that he was going to blow away, and I have no idea what anyone's going to look like on the scale. But if even if you'd asked me after weigh-ins, I would have picked Turner. I might have revised my pick of Turner by knockout to Turner by decision. The ironic thing is I scored this fight for Hooker. And the other two scorers for Sherdog scored it for Turner. Turns out that they were the only ones on MMA decisions who did. So Jay and Edwin were stuck on the island. Uh, did you learn anything about either guy here? Um, we already know Hooker's tough. I, I think Jalen Turner has all the tools to beat a dude like, like Hooker. Those teep kicks that he was firing, you know, worked really, really well. Those teep kicks to the body. You could tell Hooker was visibly, you know, just not liking that. And Hooker's just so tough. And I kind of thought Hooker might have been done, but I don't think he's done. He he is just such a dog hooker. As even in the post fight, Joe was like, Is your arm broken? And he goes, It's just a scratch. And he, you know, chuckles after that. That was yeah. a gangster ass moment. He's like um, the black knight from Monty Python on the Holy Grail. Like he's got like no limbs left. He's like, Oh, it's just a flesh wound. Yeah, that that's Dan Ogre. The, the the South Park meme um, where uh, I didn't hear no bell and he's just all tattered and ruined, you know, <laughs> like, but tattooed hooker with blonde slash pink hair. Um, he's going to he's going to be like cross training at shooto box before we know it. Well, I assume that he just did that <laughs> to sneak into the shooto box. Diego Lima, like after party, he's like, you know, sneaking in between, uh, yeah. you know, Charles Oliveira and. Uh, one of the other like in the dark, bronze. his hair would light up, but his light yeah. skin tone wouldn't show up so much. <laughs> you know, just, uh, this was a good ass fight. This was fight of the night until the co-main event. Yeah, um, it, it was fight of the night until we had a fight of the year candidate. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Which unfortunate for Dan Hooker, since he stood to make a hundred thousand bucks, he was going to have one of those uh, Juliana Orosa nights where he gets in the fight of the night and his opponent misses weight, but no such luck. My only notes on this fight are Turner's front kick is money. His whole kicking game is. Uh, yeah. Like, I think it's interesting that I don't, and I don't know if you'll fight at 155 again after this, or he's just finally going to concede to reality, move up to 170. Uh, but I think it's interesting that being as tall as he is with his legs, as long as his are takedown defense would always be an obvious uh, problem for him. And despite that, where a lot of fighters might turn away from trying to kick, he kicks freely. I don't know if he's like, hey, you know what? If you want to try to get inside and take me down, go for it. But he kicks fearlessly. 
and just variety of speeds, angles, and targets. Uh, I love watching Jalen Turner's kicking game. His front teep to the body is like one of the best in the UFC. It's it is really, really good. He uses it like, like a jousting spear. Um, and I think that may be his thing where he's like, Hey, you have to eat 13 of these jousting kicks to the liver and body and the solar plexus. Yeah. Maybe you'll get it in on me and get a takedown, but I'm big enough to maybe scramble out, but I'm going to hit you with 10 of these kicks to the body first. Um, Turner just is just like a guy that misses weight. His durability just didn't seem there. And once he started flagging, you know, he started flagging pretty bad. I think him at 170 where he can kind of retool things, build his body accordingly, because if he goes to 170, he'll still be just as fast. And maybe he can put on a little bit of muscle, a little bit of weight and, and be more hydrated and just be more durable. Yeah, even if he doesn't change his physique one bit and just shows up that much more hydrated. Cardio and durability. He's oversized for welterweight. Like he's at least as tall yeah. as Neil Magny and has better and has better reach. God, if he moved up to if he moved up to welterweight and they made him fight Neil Magny, I would literally just I would Man, crack up. <laughs> they already made me watch Neil Magny versus Phil Rowe, where it was two like six foot three black dudes with braids <laughs> that looked the same from like sixty like like sixty percent of the angles you could take. They looked like interchangeable. Like, don't throw Turner into that mix. Went a dude, little bit, you know. Dude, dude, go up another weight class. Throw him to one eighty five. He's taller than Robert Whitaker and Drickus Duplessis. Like, like Jalen Turner is young, gifted improving his skills from fight to fight there's plenty of things he could do yeah and 170 i mean today right now 170 is not as good as 155 either like there's just not as many crazy threats at 170 with, with when it comes to a guy with his skill set um well until you get to the very top to the very like, top you could get into the top 10 easier but the old guard at the top are all still really good wrestlers that's his, you know, that's yeah. going to be his problem, but he's not going to have to fight, you know, as whatever his ranking was 12, I believe, you know, he's not going to have to be outside the top 10 fighting dudes like Mateus Gamrod up there. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Agreed. Uh, any other major thoughts about hooker versus Turner? Good ass fight. Great fight. Yeah. Great fight. Uh, before that, your main card opener, or if you listen to the preview, the main event of UFC 290, after which there were four prelims, uh, Bo Nickel versus late notice replacement, Valentine Woodburn. Uh, Woodburn stepped in for Treshawn Gore on just day's notice and, you know, acquitted himself honorably. He knew where he was. He knew what he was there to do. He knew what narrow window of opportunity he would have to dive through to shock the world. And for what it's worth, he tried it. Dude, he came out in... And in the first 10 seconds of this fight, Woodburn threw a overhand right with so much mustard on it that Nickel kind of like rolling with it. I thought it had landed like just the wind from that thing, like kind of moved Nickel's head around. And then I had to change my notes when I went back and looked at it. It's like, no, Nickel actually slipped that perfectly because I was going to say, okay, Val Woodburn hit Nickel harder than anybody has hit him in his, in his entire uh, pro MMA career, but that wasn't the case. Uh, I almost wish he did. Me too. It would, give, it would give us something to, you know, it would give us some sort of indicator. Um, and now I'm just like, damn, Bo Nickel actually has good vision. 
Like he has good strike selection. He does. He does. Uh, Obviously, you know, if you watch this and if you didn't watch this fight, what are you doing on this on this recap? Like, go watch the fight. We're not that interesting. Uh, Bo Nickel, one of the more decorated wrestlers ever to cross over in MMA, uh, decided to test his developing striking game and put Val Woodburn down with a series of three or four clean punches at range. There was no like single collar tie hockey uppercut stuff to this. This was nickel hitting targets in space, like moving targets in space. Like he was like skeet shooting uh, and put down a badly overmatched fighter freezing them up too. like he was landing clean shots and you could just see Woodburn just like freeze up with those. One thing I don't like that Bo's doing with his striking is I don't, he needs to work on his hand placement. I understand that he's fainting those takedowns, what he's doing with his lead hand, you know, really trying to, to bait a reaction because he knows like every, he knows everybody's going to expect him to wrestle, but even at middleweight, uh, a division that, you know, has Drikas Duplessis as a title challenger. Um, someone could potentially make him pay for that. Um, Val Woodburn, you know, and, and maybe, you know, Bo Nichols next five opponents won't be able to, um, but that's something he might want to tighten up. You know, he, he definitely between those shots, he, he kind of had his chin up in the air, but again, it didn't matter. And he did what he was supposed to do as the biggest favorite in the history of the UFC. That's what it's supposed to look like. That's what it's supposed to look like. Uh, he, he checked all the boxes. I agree that the hand placement was not ideal. And honestly, the mechanics on the punches were not perfect either, but they worked in spite of that. <laughs> the power was startling because when you see a Josh Koscheck or Michael Chandler crossover as an elite collegiate wrestler to MMA, you're like, Oh, I can already tell that dude's going to punch real, real hard. Like once he spends a few months, working on his fundamentals nickel isn't that type i mean nickel he is an elite athlete but it's not like he presents as this like ripped adonis he's kind of tall and lanky for 185 but it's not a john jones body you know he's strong and quick but it's not a michael chandler like oh dude this guy is, is you know if he were heavier would be like an elite like college tailback he wouldn't be wrestling at all but Every time he touched Woodburn, it clearly stopped him in his tracks. And that's been the case in all of his fights. So if he becomes the kind of fighter that lands with good power without overswinging, that's actually better than just having the Johnny Hendricks, Josh Koscheck, murderous overhand right fastball. Being able to land with good power with a variety of strikes is better for him long-term than just having a single kill shot. I mean, the wrestlers who have a killer overhand, the the list is a mile long. Some of them have done great things. Some of them haven't. Like, you know, for every Tyron Woodley or Koscheck or uh, or um, Chandler, you know, you end up with a bunch of guys that presented as, you know, future knockout artists, and it never happened. He's... Going back to his build, he definitely has a strange, strange kind of, you know, if you remove the cauliflowers and you throw them in like a, a T-shirt and shorts and some sandals, like he might just look like a regular dude. Um, well, I, I mean, no, go ahead. But like the words you're looking for are Ben Askren. 
where if you saw the guy mowing, his, he's, he's your new next door neighbor mowing his lawn. You're not looking and saying, oh, that guy, that guy was a, a borderline Olympic wrestler. Yeah. Yeah. And, and his his hand speed looked good tonight, too. I think that's something that's also worth worth touching on. Um, were shots from the hip? Yeah, a little bit. But, you know, his if striking like that is going to be his plan B, but his wrestling is his plan A. I mean, I think his plan A can take him all the way up to wherever he wants to go based off accolades and abilities right now anyway. Um, so might as well, you know, be the, be the opener on a pay-per-view, get all the shine you deserve and win a fight like that. Like he did what he was supposed to do. And why do what everyone is expecting you to do when you could do something different? Sure. And still have the same, you know, outcome. And I mean, you never want to underestimate or write off a setup opponent. You don't want to, I mean, well, you don't want to look at the cautionary tale of Aaron Pico, but at the same time, if Nicola on some level understands, okay, I have a safety outlet here. I can single leg this guy anytime I want, take him down straight into side control and arm triangle him to use that as an opportunity to stretch out and try a few of the skills he's been working on in the gym under live fire situation. I'm not mad at that. Uh, One thing I, I do have to pull out of the the live chat, which is banging tonight. You know, good work, guys. One foot out the door. One thing that will get you banned from this chat is speaking any evil of Mike the Truth Jackson. Uh, just understand, like, I, I'm giving you a warning, but you don't necessarily automatically get a warning. Speaking ill of Mike the Truth Jackson, you know, we'll we'll get a motherfucker. Uh, banned from the chat immediately and that was absolutely not a fake fight and the way i know is that i did a multi feature length takeout interview with mike jackson before his fight with cm punk and he told me two things in that interview and granted i had an inside track because we were already friends but he said one i smoke weed two i don't want to hurt uh i don't want to hurt phil brooks too bad i just want to hurt him bad enough that he realizes this fighting thing isn't for him Lo and behold, he didn't finish him, hurt him just bad enough that he never fought again, and lo and behold, he tested positive for weed afterwards. Therefore, Mike the Truth Jackson has the most appropriate nickname in MMA history because he told me the truth twice in one interview. Uh, Any other thoughts on Nickel versus Woodburn? You know, I did love Bo Nickel's post-fight. Like, you could tell this moment was not too much for him. His post-fight interview, he stated, yeah, knocking people out, you know, in the UFC in this octagon in front of you guys is pretty cool. But, but being a good husband and a good dad is, is even more cool. I like, I like a dude like that. You know, you, you go from that to what we saw with Izzy and I mean, just a, and just come, com, you know, two completely different things. I mean, that always makes me slightly nervous to be honest, like, like someone who goes out that hard to talk about, you know, being a good dad and a good husband. I always hope they mean it, and I, I hope that nothing comes out later to, you know, like John Jones, <laughs> to, 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 yeah, to cast that in a bad light. Knowing what limited things I do about uh, Bo and his family, I'm inclined to believe he means it. So, yeah, yeah, good. You know, winning at life definitely much greater than winning at sports for uh, you know whatever limited amount of time. Uh, speaking of winning in sports for a limited amount of time. Uh, quick question off the top, assuming it sticks and he really is done wearing four ounce gloves in any kind of cage or ring. 
did Robbie Lawler just give us the most perfect goodbye of any high level fighter in history? Yes. And for high level, I'll just say top ten at any point. Top ten at any point in their career. I'll even just say there. Not even former champs. Just dudes like him are supposed to go out on their back. They usually get used and abused and beaten up by newcomers and he won this fight as an underdog crushed nico price um and i wasn't surprised you know like when when the whole thing went down and the way that the fight ended the way nico was in the clinch just getting clubbed with uppercuts and shots on the temple um i love the package that they put together for lawler two at the end just this whole thing was th this whole thing i mean there are some things that left a bad taste in my mouth tonight, but this, I mean, this was great. This whole thing was awesome. It was beautiful. It was. Uh, just floating through throws up what has been my number one forever. Chris Lytle. He, you know, it's his first ever headlining UFC card, unless you count like the tough final where he just, was the headliner because he was in the tough final and lost to Matt Sarah. But okay, he's going to headline a fight night against Dan Hardy. He gets fight of the night, submission of the night. He already said in advance it was going to be his uh, retirement fight. He retires and he stays retired. Like that was the Cinderella story. That was Chris Lytle, you know, never a champ, but a longtime high level fighter getting the most Hollywood ending he possibly could to his career. But man, Robbie Lawler coming in as an underdog to Nico Price and count me in. I was among the ones who said Nico Price is going to wreck Lawler because Lawler got wrecked by Brian Barbarena in his last fight. And Barbarena is a smaller, older, more shop-worn version of Price with less power. I, I was like, oh, man. But way more durable. Barbarena is much more durable and less prone to getting himself into perilous situations. After all, Nico Price is the, if not the UFC's all-time leader, he's on the leaderboard for finding exotic and weird ways to lose fights. But I figured that wouldn't matter against Lawler because another problem with Lawler is that in the last couple of years, he's had increasing trouble pulling the trigger. You go back to Lawler versus Magny, and he just lost a depressing fight where he never got out of first gear. So my thought was, okay, this fight, either Price knocks him out and it's ugly, or Price wins a decision where he's chasing Lawler around the ring and Lawler's just like this. Lawler let him fly, man. He, he let, let him fly. fly. <laughs> but he he let him fly. And even in the midst of letting him fly, he stayed Robbie Lawler. I mean, he's got the yeah, it was right hand. He's got the single collar tie with the right hand. So we're in hockey fight mode, but he yeah. goes uppercut and then. Withdraws, right. goes, hey, thank you, goes, like, hook. So beautiful, beautiful, just, like just, just chef's kiss. Like, I have no idea what the years and the miles and the punishment have done to Robbie Lawler upstairs in terms of appreciating fine literature or learning a third language, but his MMA brain is still on point because. There's no possible way he even thought of that. That was just pure, this has been hammered into me by 
spending half my lifetime fighting the best fighters in the world. It was so beautiful. So just even in the subtleties, the little nuances, what a brilliant performance by Robbie Lawler. The dirty boxing was like, I mean, DC was probably in the, you know, doing his commentary, just smiling, watching this dirty boxing because DC is another dude that loved that, that mm -hmm. overhook collar tie pull the you know pull the head down and meet him with uppercuts but the way he stunned him with the uppercut and then came around the guard after kind of behind the ear on the temple he hit him with a shot on the temple a shot behind the ear and an uppercut in that clinch exchange and price just crumbled like it, it was it was like he came down like a stack of cards and you know is price in a position where he's been hurt in a lot of his previous fights does he always get hurt yes but he always also finds weird ways to win um and you, I, even if you thought Nico Price is a shot fighter, you know, his, his chin is gone, blah, blah, blah. Like, do not let that take away from this being Robbie Lawler's. I mean, take your toys and go home, Robbie, please. And what makes me think he's going to probably actually stick to this retirement was him saying that he doesn't like his training camps. Like, that's a big thing. If you don't, fighters love to be in the gym. Mm -hmm. They're like, you know, I'm going to use I'm going to use Sean Strickland, for example. That dude lives in the gym like <laughs> that's because he doesn't have any furniture in his house. Of course, he lives in the fucking gym. Anyway, true, go I, ahead. I probably have more. I probably have more furniture. <laughs> I probably have more furniture just on my two desks right here with my. Yeah, but probably Lawler doesn't like being in training camp. And if you can't prepare for a fight, you can't be in a fight unless you start taking fights in a, in a bad way. But I think he's done. Um Watching him tear up, I, I love that the UFC kind of put him in camera while they showed the whole package. And um, shout out to all of those really quick finishes prior to this, too, including his, which gave them the allotted time, you know, to play that package for him. Um, they even bought the rights to like the they had tons of right, you know, like all of his stuff from like, like there was even his Melvin Manhoof knockout in that like clip. Um, they, they already own that footage. They just don't roll it out very often. Sure. Um, <laughs> they bought the rights to it a while ago, but yeah, I love that they put the package together for him. The whole thing was awesome. We don't get this. We and just don't get this. I completely agree. Oh, by the way, I threw up a Skynet comment. Furniture is for people that don't own enough guns. That I'm actually getting Dev a T-shirt made that says that. Uh, in, in honor of his like podcasting background uh, and, and the things I know about him personally. Um. Uh, here's the thing. I completely agree about that. Uh, the little reel they showed of him. Now picture watching that after he got crushed by price. They would same footage, different think, feel right? or, or, or did they have like the red tape and the blue tape? And they're just happy that they got to play the blue tape. Like, would it be, a, did they have a different highlight reel? If he just got crushed. Um, I think I, that they wouldn't have probably even played anything. Cause it would have been too somber of a moment. Yeah, I mean, they would have given him a, a retirement kind of like uh, Jim Crute. <laughs> uh, here's, I, I don't want to go down too much of a career retrospective of Robbie Lawler just because we're already an hour and a half into the show and we're not even halfway into the card, but he might be the most enigmatic fighter of all time when we think of enigmatic fighters i as an american even an american who like is fluent in multiple languages i think of people like fedor people like anderson silva who always lived behind a, a bit of a 
a language barrier as regarded me. But seriously, has there ever been a fighter who achieved more than Robbie Lawler that we knew less about personally, just what he like thought and loved and hated? You know, I don't like there are fighters, you know, their favorite color. You don't know Robbie Lawler's favorite color. You don't know anything about him. No, like I, things I know about Robbie Lawler. Uh, he loves Iowa Hawkeyes football. And he's good at fighting. And he's good at fighting. And um, that's it. And that's good. I think that's a good thing. I think keeping, you know, kind of. It's like the whole, it's kind of similar to like Nate Diaz having kids where people are like, what? Nate Diaz has got kids. He's got a family. You know, like the, it's just one of those things where these guys keep it, you know, keep their lives behind closed doors. Robbie Lawler's always been, you know, definitely a, a tough shell to crack. Um, tonight was the most emotion that he showed. I saw more emotion from him in three minutes tonight than I have in every single post fight of his whole career put together. Um, what an interesting dude. Just like weird um and this was you know again like we have to cherish this moment because like you don't get you don't get great champions walking away like this agreed uh so all that to say watch for robbie lawler and bkfc five months from now against like Mike Perry or some shit where no I, I don't even want to like will that into existence but for the moment we have maybe MMA's greatest ever retirement and uh here is wishing all the best to Robbie Lawler I mean he went out on top but nobody was surprised yeah not this longevity yeah, like <laughs> like shot either. Like but, well well in the case of of Khabib, he went out on top, but he thrashed a guy everyone expected him to thrash. And no one expected know, him and, to and, lose and, a fight. And he hell, an some some people think he's not he's still not really done. Like shout out to Jay Petri who who still thinks he's coming back. Uh <laughs> yeah, like to me this this feels more totally. like and movie script like yeah, and like Habib did not retire as an old dog. He retired as a favorite, as just a, you know, a, a, just a hammer, always a hammer. And Robbie Lawler came in as an underdog. This was like a true hero story. Yeah. Um, it couldn't have been written any better. And just like sure. I said, a movie script. Yeah. I, I mean, he had a whole second career that, you know, all of his real big achievements ever came from. Anyway, before that, Tatsuro Taira, one of multiple undefeated prospects on this card, uh, came out unscathed, same as Bo Nickel. But uh, against Edgar Kyrez, that's kind of where the similarities end. Tell me if you feel differently, but I felt as though I saw some vulnerabilities from Tyra here, where and a he, lot may of be, them. he may be a future champ. I'm I'm not like I'm not off the Tyra bandwagon. But he seems to me like a guy who is probably going to take a loss or two on the way up. He's young enough, has enough time to shore up his flaws that it won't matter, you know, where Tyra is five years from now. It, it isn't super dependent on what we saw tonight, but he looked vulnerable tonight. A borderline UFC level fighter had him in trouble multiple times. 
and could have had him in more trouble if not for some dumb choices. Yeah. Like at the end of the day, I still think Chira's like won this fight. You know what I mean? Like where you, you kind of, I sent this in the sure dog slack. I, you know, I think it was maybe my first episode of my show. I chose to break down the Clayton Rodriguez and Tatsuro Tyra fight when they made that fight. And, you know, I kind of gave Clayton a lot more chances than everybody probably did. And I think Clayton might've knocked out Tyra tonight. Tyra did not like, he looked very vulnerable on the feet. Um, And he is a, he seems to be potentially one of those dudes that can only be the hammer. Agreed. Oh, I don't hate this. Skynet's, you got one right tonight, bro. Pat, like, <laughs> this was very. <laughs> Patty looks like a world beater when he's in control. Yeah. When, but very susceptible to his opponent's offense. And yeah, like, Tyra had no answers for simple offense on the feet. Agreed. And might have been in more trouble on the ground, except for uh, Kyra's doing things like grabbing a guillotine and falling to his butt, which is maybe literally the worst thing you could possibly do against Tatsuro Taira in that situation. Like, that lost him this fight. Yeah, it lost Something him this fight. guillotine lost him this fight. You, you've, got, you've got this guy in trouble. Almost the most forgiving thing you, you could do for him is concede top position to him. Tyra's a great topside grappler. Yep. He is a great topside grappler. His striking defense did not look good tonight. Nope. His his ability to make reads and adjust when he's taking on damage, which was kind of minimal, was a little bit alarming. Um, you could tell he even looked flustered. Like he just he didn't have the ability. It's not like he has the ability and he was blanking. Like, I don't know if that's something that he even possesses right now. Um, and flyweight, like if you thought he was a title challenger and you watched this fight and you watched the title fight tonight, there is a long, he's got a real long way. Um, and this was basically a short notice fight in my opinion. And I also find it pretty weird that he wouldn't fight Clayton Rodriguez when Clayton missed weight, but then he took a catch weight bout. That it also is- looks weird to me. Is weird. I, I being as young as he is, I'm inclined to leave that more in the hands of his handlers than him himself. He hardly seems like a, a calculating figure. But yeah, so I'm again not off the Tyra bandwagon. Just I expect that he's probably going to take a loss at some point. Has slow some things roll. to go back to the. He's got to be really slow rolled, like Malcolm Gordon type fight next fight. You know. Agreed. Agreed. Uh, before that, we had Denise Gomez versus Jasmine Howergy. This fight was 20 seconds long, so I refuse to talk much more than that about it. All I'll say is I was wrong and right about this fight. I picked Howergy, but at the same time, I said of all the uh, women at PRVT, she might be the one who resembles Jessica Andrade the mm-hmm. most, just in terms of brute power and mean streak and finishing instincts once she has someone hurt. And that's all it took. Uh, I picked this fight wrong, but I'm not mad at my analysis. Like if Gomez was going to win, it was going to look exactly like this. Any surprise, any surprises to you here? No, I, I, 
when this fight got announced and the line came out, I was like, yeah, Haruki is definitely highly touted, but I think she's a little juiced up um, as far as like where, you know, matchmakers and think may be where she is. She's been clipped up. She takes damage. Um, Denise Gomes is a power puncher. She's a training partner, Jessica Andrade. Her game is built very similar to hers. Um, what did the line close at? Wasn't Gomes like a plus 200 or something like that? She's a, a fairly large underdog here, right? Like as of the beginning of, of fight week, it was Gomez was like plus 300. Yeah, like that, yeah, that, that was a bad was line. Of, yeah. This was Gomes looked great, clipped her right away. Haragi couldn't recover and she died on a single leg. Um, just like half the people that get clipped and die on a single leg. Yeah. Um, this is awesome though. Great for Gomes. Uh, I completely, completely agreed. Yeah. Like Skynet, uh, Johnny on the spot with that number as well. Before that, the rematch that nobody was really asking for, but nobody was really <laughs> mad at either. Yeah. Uh, Jim Crute and Alonzo Menafield fought to a draw in their first fight. There was, they talked about it as being controversial. I didn't think of it as that controversial. Just there was a uh, a point, point deduction because Menafield grabbed the fence. So they decided to run it back a few months later. And this time there is no need for a fence grab. And there is a definitive uh, result as Menafield punch or sorry, chokes out Crute in the middle of the second round with a guillotine. That's after winning the first round and generally getting the better of the second. I mean, it was, it wasn't dominance, but, Benefield was getting the better of most of it, I, I felt. Uh, any big surprises out of this for you? Because I had a few surprises. So I'm interested to see what your your take on this is. I think the biggest surprise was Crew hanging it up and not even getting any microphone time after. Um, what a diss. Yeah, I don't really... <laughs> the false... Jeez, 30C West. <laughs> I'm reading his comment up on the screen now. Um... Yeah, I don't really, you know, Alonzo looked big. He looked powerful. His front headlock was very vicious. Um, and it, it kind of like was a front headlock guillotine that turned into like a, a net crank and a choke at the same time. Crute tapped really quickly. Um, he looked strong against the cage. He he looked calculated. He stayed calm. Um, he Alonzo Menafield's definitely like not as nervous as he used to be. Um, he seemed to be a little bit nervous in, in previous fights, especially like when he first got to the UFC. Um, good on him. He'll get a ranking. I don't believe he was ranked. And I think Crute was like, what, 12 or something um, yeah. between 10 and 15. Um, good on him. And I don't, if Crute's really done, maybe good for him while he's still young. Maybe. I, again, this is, MMA is too hard and too dangerous a sport to engage in if your heart's not in it like agreed i not it's it's not worth doing for the paycheck mm -hmm. your 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 future kids deserve to have you there present mentally and physically when you're in your 50s more than you need that extra paycheck unless you're one of a very very small percentage of, of highest paid fighters but if you're fighting in the ufc for 20 and 20 your brain cells aren't worth it so if crew no. really if his heart isn't in it anymore Move on to the next thing, dude, and I, I wish you the best. Uh, if this was just uh, something he decided in a moment of frustration, he is a 27, 28-year-old man. You want to circle around and come back? Welcome back, because you're still at 205. 
you're not even in your prime yet, and you probably got literally eight or ten more years at or near peak level. Having and you can go all, to heavyweight after. Yeah. Having <laughs> said all that, I was actually really impressed by Alonzo Menafield here. I thought I had a handle on Alonzo Menafield, his strengths, his weaknesses. But they rematched this fight, you know, four or five months on from the first matchup. Menafield is 35. If either of these guys was going to be physically not as good four months on from the first fight, it was going to be Menafield. Yeah. If if either of these guys had significant new wrinkles in their skill set, it was probably going to be crude. Yet, Menafield's gas tank looked on point. We're talking about a guy in Menafield that typically has about six minutes of cardio. Like, if he's not well ahead or killing somebody early in the second round, it's bad news for Alonzo Menafield. That wasn't the case here. Menafield, uh, it's easier to manage your gas tank when you're in the driver's seat, but at least for the duration of this fight, he was the fresher guy. Crute looked more tired when they got off the stools, despite the fact that Crute has clearly been slimming down on purpose. And then on top of all that, yeah, Menafield won with a guillotine. And if you told me, like sight unseen, okay, Menafield wins this, by guillotine in the middle of round two, I would have guessed it was either something he just stumbled on in a scramble or it was a club and sub type thing where he hurt crew really badly and just pounced on a desperation single. But no, this was purposeful and it was fast. Menafield knew exactly what he was doing and was fast on the ground. That's a nice new weapon to have in your, uh, in your toolkit for a guy in Menafield that mostly is a super hard hitting Muay Thai striker. So, yeah, developing at, fight IQ is big, especially at 35 years old. Yep. Like just just getting your mind right. Um, if you are athletic, you are strong. If, if you can, you know, hone your cardio and hone and hone your fight IQ like that makes a world of a difference um, for crew being 20. I think what is he 28 now? Um, and this goes to any 28 year old you know, listening to this or wherever in the world you are, like it's not too late to turn around and do something different in your life. <laughs> like, so if you are really done, like if you, if he is really done though, like he still has a, you know, I'm, I was 28 once. And when I was, I think I started my career when I was like 27 doing what I do now. And I was, it was something completely different and I took off and ran with it. I feel like I do fine in life. So if that's what Crute wants to do, like good on him, but just like you said, get out. If your heart's not into it, you're just going to take way too much damage. Agreed. Uh, Pat Berry grew Menafield to win. That is That's quite funny. impressive, considering that Menafield is literally twice the age of Pat Berry's preferred pupil in that regard. All right. Before that, the battle of the peas. Petrino versus Procneo. Vitor Petrino, one of... I don't know where this factory is in Brazil that is just cranking out jacked dudes above... Uh, welterweight, the 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 factory that all these guys have been coming from, your Gileton Almeidas. Uh, but Vitor Petrino is the newest example of that. He got a shot against Procneo, who seemed for the longest time to not be UFC material at all, but had been on a decent run. And Petrino ended up win, uh, winning late in the third round with a Nice little topside submission. That was after winning the first two rounds. Any big thoughts about this one? Watching this fight 
and the whole the only thing that was going through my head was how the hell did Mars how did Pracneo beat Khalil Roundtree? <laughs> like just watching this fight, I like he looked so out of sorts. Like he looks like he is one of those guys that like when he gets hit clean, like you can tell visibly, like he's like, This sucks. You know, like the exact opposite of a guy like Brendan Moreno, where he gets touched up and he's like, Here we go. You know, Pracneo. I don't know if Pracneo even wanted to be here. Like he had moments like his his leg kicks. He was having like he was having success, but then he would just kind of like hermit crab, just get back in his shell. And like he did not like the looks of this giant Brazilian dude in front of him that can take him down, that can kickbox with him. And he was like, Oh my god, this guy has cardio too. Was it an ugly fight? Yes, but you know. Ugly, but you know what? Uh say on the preview in talking about the nickel fight, I said my and this is back when I thought he was fighting Treshawn Gore. I said my best wish out of this is to see Nickel have to do anything outside of his comfort zone. Like let him deal with somebody that gets a nasty guillotine off of his first takedown attempt, or or fights off his first takedown attempt or two, or stretches him past the first round. Uh, same here with Petrino. All I really wanted in order to be able to assess Petrino as a prospect was see him face some adversity. So. I'm glad he got an ugly fight against a fighter who is just extremely mid middleweight in the UFC, but, or sorry, mid light heavyweight in the UFC, but has generally been tough to put away and has kind of a tricky, unconventional skill set. I, I kind of enjoyed seeing Petrino have to deal with that. Uh, and while Procneo didn't bring many ideas to the table, like, I guess the perfect March and Procneo fight. He wants to go out there and just karate fight a man. Like if you move from Poland to uh, train at Tatsujin Dojo in Amsterdam, you clearly just, you, you want to be the next like karate influenced kickboxer out of the, the Netherlands. And that's what he wants. But once he realized Petrino was faster than him and he couldn't really land cleanly on, on Petrino, he didn't have a second idea. Mm -mm. He just was kind of a good resisting foe. Uh, that's, that's about it. Uh, and I don't think he has the tools to have a second idea, you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. Petrino saying this was fight of the night on in his post-fight little speech there made me audibly chuckle. Even by that point of the night, it wasn't the fight of the night. <laughs> like that wasn't the fight of the month, bro. Like, yeah. like that was like, this is there's just, there's, yeah. you know, yeah, that was funny. Um, yeah. Interesting fight. And Petrino had a weird fight with Tricali. Um He's going to be full of these weird fights. I think, I think that's what his whole UFC career is going to look like here. Yeah, completely agree there. Uh, before that, yet another of the undefeated prospects to uh, be tested or not, Cameron Simon, the other half of the South Africa South Africa connection, had been scheduled to fight Christian Rodriguez. Rodriguez drops out. He instead takes on a uh, tough veteran, Terrence Mitchell. Simon goes through a little bit of... Uh, intrigue before uh knocking him out in late in the first round what are your thoughts on simon are you are you 
and I don't think we've talked about him before. Are you on the Simon train? Do you think he's a future contender at 135? Or do you just think he's a dude that hasn't faced the right guys yet? I mean, you could have the same ideas that we have about Drikas Duplessis and look where he's at now. So, I mean, I'm not going to. I'm not going to take anything away from Simon. I, I I think, you know, he's in a way harder division. He's at bantamweight, which is a very tough division. He's got, he's not a big dude. He's not very physical. He's got a short reach. I think he might have the shortest reach in that division. Um, I think he might have the shortest reach in actually men's UFC. Okay. Well, here, how about this? Rather than talk about a tougher division, let's talk about the same division. Uh, at 135? Uh, Cameron Simon is nine and zero. When Sean O'Malley was nine and zero, he was in like his second UFC fight, beating up people like Terry and Ware and Andre Sukumtat. Are Same you thing. are you are you higher or lower on Simon than you were on O'Malley at that time? I'm lower on Simon right now. Um, however, that could totally be subject to change. He's young. He's very young. He is in a stacked division, but clearly the camp he trains at has the ability to have these guys keep winning fights. Um, I think he's more of a time will tell thing. Um, I just don't think Mitchell's just UFC caliber at all, unfortunately. I agree. Having said that, I liked uh, Mitchell better at 135 because I remember on Tough at 125 getting plunked by uh, Ty Car France and... I was like, you are the most ridiculous looking flyweight I've ever seen. You you look like Charles Johnson crossed with that kid in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory that had to get like stretched out on on like the rack. Uh put some put something on, on your frame. I I mean Mitchell's uh takedown on Simon early on. It was good. It was pretty good. Yeah. Uh but here's the thing that actually makes me higher on Simon than I was on Sean O'Malley at this point in their respective careers. Simon already looks slick on the ground. We're talking about a guy that was a decorated kickboxer, at least on the national level in South Africa. That's definitely his background and he's super young. So it's not like he's had a real long time to develop like a multi-track skill set. He may be one of those guys that just, takes to the to the ground game like a fish to water because in every time he's been he's been on the ground so far it's just been slick uh he seems to come out better in the the kind of scramble situations of which there are tons in those lighter weight classes so like the Kozlo fight like he came back and and you know had some a little bit of adversity grappling and came back and, and did good there um it's just so hard to have a good, you know, idea of where someone's at in a division like bantamweight, just because bantamweight is just so good. Um, someone in the chat asked for a, a tip on a 38 year old that wants to go into the UFC. Um, my advice, they're asking for our advice. My advice would be, be a heavyweight. <laughs> yeah. You turn into a, you become a heavyweight. you like most of your career is ahead of you. Yep. Uh, <laughs> Skynet. No. Cannoneer came up in Alaska. He came out of AFC, Alaska Fighting Championship, mm -hmm. but he is originally from Texas, yeah. whereas Mitchell is born in Alaska. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, before that, uh, second fight on the card at UFC 290, Shannon Ross meets Jesus or meets Jesus, as in Jesus Santos Aguilar. 
gets knocked out in 17 seconds. What a knockout. I mean, yeah. Anything to say about this? He looked fast. And I love the way he kind of, you know, moved his head off the center line. And then literally that that overhand was like a fastball. Um, crushed Shannon Ross and sent him home to God. Um, I was a little bit alarmed by how long he was knocked out for. And the uh, cage side camera tried to like pan out a little bit, but you could still see Shannon Ross's like body from the knees down. <laughs> like that we of the tonight we had two of the years fight of the year and potential knockout of the year and potential event of the year like yes yeah. it was it was a hell of a card and we'll get to that fun stuff in, in in a few minutes but i don't want to talk too much longer than that about a 17 second fight just <laughs> suffice it to say that was a brutal knockout um your opener at ufc 290 was the lightweight matchup between camuela kirk and esteban ribovic's I picked Kirk in this one, even though he's coming up from uh, featherweight. And once I saw him kind of during fight week on the scale, walking into the cage, I felt better about that pick because I said, okay, Kirk looks like he put some work into moving up to lightweight. He didn't just eat more ice cream or not cut as much water. He looks like he tried to build into a lightweight body. I felt good about my pick for five minutes. Then all of a sudden I started feeling bad about my pick. Uh, my problem here, yeah, uh, Kirk lost. He lost righteously. I maybe have been the only person on the planet that gave Rubovich a uh, uh, 10-8 second round. But either way, Rubovich dominated from the beginning of the second round on out. It didn't leave me higher on either guy, though. This felt kind of like a race to the bottom, just in terms of Rubovich's takedown defense is not good. Kirk's head head movement is terrible in the second round it was like it's like he had head movement but he was trying to find the punches you know it, it's yeah. almost like a almost like a bad pad holder you know because a bad pad holder is is one who is trying to help the fighter and is like trying to meet their punches sure. and make the routine look snappier like the all-time great example is master tong the guy that worked with team alpha male before bang ludwig came along like the mis- mysterious like thai guy sure that, yeah it looked like kirk was trying to do that with his face like he was trying to make ribovix look good like were you trying to sell his offense like you're like rick flair or some shit it was terrible but i didn't see anything here that made me feel good about ribovix against a top 15 lightweight either i like ribovix um body punching I did like that he he was willing to punch the body. It's good to see someone that's young in their career. Um, not I'm not gonna say sell out on body punching, but you know use that as part of their, part of their offense. His striking combination looked good, but again, you know is that Kamala Kirk's striking defense? You know making his his offensive striking shine. Um, we don't know. I don't know how long this is for Kamala Kirk at this UFC level. Unfortunately, um, Ribovich does have some nice blue eyes though that I didn't know about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I and it it is that time of the night, guys. Where <laughs> that, was, that was my biggest takeaway. Um, well, they said his nickname was like um, uh, the Gringo was like the translation to it. Yeah, I'm like, why are they calling him that? And then I saw his blue eyes, and I go, oh, that makes sense. He's that was my biggest you know, takeaway. <laughs> he's from he's from Argentina. If he's got blue eyes, he's probably descended from like 
a former concentration camp card that like fled after World War II. Yeah. Oh, I'm going to get in trouble for that. <laughs> uh, that is the 14 fight card of UFC 290. Uh, let's get to the fun stuff. Uh, you know, we're, God, we're two hours. This good grief. All right. We're going to make this as quick as we can. I can't believe you guys have stuck with this. You are amazing. Uh, do you have anybody for your cut list? Dev, let us know, guys, if you want to cut anybody. Cut list, Keith and I, you know, it's a circle of life. UFC has 600 fighters. There's a season of Dana White's Contender Series. Got to make room for the new. Let me know who you'd cut. Uh, I'm going with Kamala Kirk, and I'm going with Marcin Pragnio. And I'm sure Pragnio is on your your card. I don't know if Kirk is, um, but, but I'm okay. And I'm also going to add Shannon Ross to that as well. Um, Ross has taken some some pretty bad punishment, and he was always a regional guy. Um, yeah, those are my three. That's uh, the only one that I definitely have on my cut list is is Ross. Um, everyone else, they're multiple people who stepped up on short notice and looked terrible. They're going to get another chance. Yeah, it's it's just it's just Ross for me. Okay. Uh, let's get to bulls and bears. I am fine if we can just get to three total uh, between us for, for these two. You want to go negative or positive here? Um, I'm sure the top of everyone's... We can go negative. Let's go negative. There's a Let's lot go of negative. Problems. You want to go first or, or, or you want to go second? I'll go second. Okay. Uh, going first. Uh, bulls and bears, of course. Stock market reference. You know what it means. I'll throw out... I'll throw out two of them. One. Nico Price, you were a big favorite. And you were fighting somebody that a lot of people didn't see having a great chance. And you gave him almost the only fight he could possibly beat you. Like, even if he outstruck <laughs> you from range for the first round, if you didn't get knocked out, you were probably going to pull ahead and win because his gas tank would have given out and his durability. You gave him, you gave Robbie Lawler literally the only fight where he was that assured of winning just a hockey fight in close range within the first minute. Uh, I thank you for it because it gave us a great feel good story, but for your stock where you're not talking about retirement, you're talking about trying to be a top 15 fighter, not a good night. And to me, the most obvious bear on this whole card, Robert Whitaker, all of a sudden, when was the last time Robert Whitaker lost a non-title fight? It's been a long-ass time. And while the jury is still out on whether this portends a an erosion in his skills and physical abilities, or Drickus Duplessis is just the man of destiny, only time will tell. But Robert Whitaker looked worse than we've seen him look in a long, long time. And he's no longer, inarguably, the number two or number three guy in that division. So, yeah. Rough night uh, for Bobby Knuckles. What do you got? Um, the biggest bear of the night, obviously, is probably Izzy's little thing, so we'll just remove that. Um, Yasmin Haragi, he, she, 10-0, yeah. highly, highly touted. A lot of people were hype on her. A lot, a lot of people were hype on her. And she just kind of got um, murked, for lack of better terms. And then um, also on the prelims, I we talked about it. Shannon Ross, like he's got knocked out twice. This time was really bad, like hospital bad, not going straight home after this. That's always really, really tough. Um, 
those are going to be my two for the night. Outstanding. Um, then next up is bulls. Things that were good. Things whose stock went up. Have you got any? And do you want to go first? I will go first. Um, I'm going to play off of your Robert Whitaker, and I'm going to go with Drinkus Duplessy. Um, probably the most unexpected win of the night. Um, that was incredible. That was really, really dope. Um, and then my number two, got to give it to Volk, right? You know, okay. um, defending the featherweight strap again, adding another, you know, scalp to the wall at home um, and kind of only got one contender left and he did what he needed to do to win this fight. One by finish. Outstanding. Uh, I like uh, all of those. I will add to those. Uh, Denise Gomez, we know that you are in any fight you're in with that kind of power and that kind of explosion, but you need to actually make it happen once in a while for us to really respect it. She did it tonight against a heavily favored opponent. So, yeah, big moment for Denise Gomez. And then, man, Robbie Lawler. We knew we were saying goodbye to you tonight one way or the other, but it became a memorable and, frankly, genuinely affecting moment. Like Robbie Lawler was a big deal when I started watching the sport. I mean, as I look at my calendar now, I may be just I may actually be coming up on the 20 year anniversary of like the first pay-per-view card I bought with my own money. Like I'll have to look back, but sure. I'm coming up on two decades uh, of watching the sport. Robbie Lawler has been a big deal the entire time. I've seen him as the tainted like anointed, you know, savior of MMA. I've seen him wandering in the wilderness years struggling to beat middling fighters. I saw his like Cinderella title run in the UFC. I saw him shot and looking miserable within the last two or three years. And then tonight I saw some small measure of redemption that reminds me why I started watching the sport in the first place. And it's all thanks to Robbie Lawler. Uh, I am happy. I am thankful. His stock is up. Do you have any dude serious moments? Dude seriously moments. (laughs) Um, Yes, there was quite, I mean, um, quite a, quite a bit of them. Um, elephant in the room, remove that one. Once again, that was a very dude, seriously. Um, just, I could, I still can't get over, you know, all the different camera angles that they could have used for that Shannon Ross knockout. And they choose to show him still laying there, like the bottom half of his, you know, from like the knee down. I'm just like, seriously guys, like, you know, I don't, I don't think that that's great. Also, too, dude, seriously, whoever that chick was in the Moreno fight, coaching him from like, did you hear that woman screaming like, get the underhook, okay. turn the oh, angle, oh, the like, chick? Okay, who was that? Devin Tejada just made this show five minutes longer. That was Juliana fucking Pena. That was Juliana Pena. Well, I like it less now. I didn't like. I. I I disliked it regardless. Juliana Pena is low key. Maybe Grotesque. the most, maybe the most annoying <laughs> high level fighter in the sport. Like she's, she's not a fascist. She's not a human trafficker. She's not a murderer. She's just shut up, Juliana. She's that. Just shut up. Yeah. And, and 
you call her high level, but if she was in any other division, she's not. Be- she's in the division yeah. she's in, and she's been a top ten person whenever she was healthy for years, and now she's a former champ. I said Pena's annoying. I refuse to apologize to her. I am an unapologetic Pena detractor in that regard. You know what? If you want to make the argument, 30C West, that the entire women's bantamweight division is not high level, I'm here for it and would like to subscribe to your newsletter. <laughs> but you can only judge people based on uh, based on beating or not beating the people in front of them. Yeah, She is high level for, for what she is. Yeah. Uh, oh, don't talk bad about about Woodley's mom. Uh, I have one <laughs> Benja Kitty. <laughs> I have one oh, dude. Seriously, I'm not even going to bring Buffer up back on Dude Seriously. Otherwise, I'll have a 45 minute podcast every week called Dude Seriously Buffer. Uh, but normally, the impeccable, the brilliantly uh, professional, for my money, the best play for play by play guy in the game, John Anik. I want to say this was in the middle of the Petrino versus Procneo fight. So the fourth prelim, they cut to a shot of like the outside of T-Mobile center. And he's like, look at all, you know, the, the fans, you know, lined up. They can't <laughs> wait. It's like, it's a weird flex to say, Hey, look, everybody's showing up halfway through the prelims. So dude, seriously, <laughs> like congratulations on tacitly admitting that your early prelims are optional viewing uh, for anyone but psychos like us. Yeah, that, that was interesting. Um, the desk was pretty good tonight. One thing, and I said this in the sure dog slack that I do also find a little bit weird, I guess is a dude seriously thing where Joe Rogan gives his scorecard as it's like gospel. Like this is the scorecard. This is how it's scored. And then within literally 60 seconds, they offer you live lines. Like I find things like that a little bit interesting as well. Um, so that's a little bit of a dude seriously moment. Um, that was really funny. Hey, look at all the people here lining to come in. We're three fights in. Uh, <laughs> Ninja Kitty says Ro- Rogan was very biased. Ninja yeah. Kitty, I know you have been watching this sport long enough that you don't think that that's news. Come on, be better. That's per as per <laughs> usual, you know. Um, All right, uh, we already gave the card an overall letter grade. We both agreed it was an A plus. We both yeah. agreed that if not the event of the year, it's on the short list. Yeah, this is normally where Keith would put me on the spot to pick my favorite child, aka the listener of the night. I cannot possibly do that tonight. Uh, I cannot believe all of you. I'm looking at the live viewing numbers, and it's always going to be a select group here. Not everybody is for a two-hour discussion of a fight card after the fight card. Uh, We have so many friends that join us pretty much every week or as often as they're able. Uh, I enjoy the conversations we have here, and I could not possibly pick a favorite. Uh, I've I've been disagreed with. I've been put on blast. I've been called misogynist. uh, I've been called delusional. I mean, just another Saturday night here. at the mixed martial arts hall of fucking awesome in Woodlock, Texas. So there is no listener of the night. It is a, a tie for first. Everyone is unsatisfied with it. And we'll, we'll run it back in one week. Uh, speaking of in one week, 
oh, what the hell is happening next week? I have notes. I should know what the name of the event is. Oh, UFC on ESPN 49, home versus... Can I take the week off? Am I allowed to do that? Can I just give a recap for my show on Tuesday? I'm about to fire myself. Just so <laughs> just I don't a, have to... get, I'm gonna I'm gonna do another recap. Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. Do a recap of, of my life as an MMA analyst when I like died at my chair. All right. Anyway, next week UFC Vegas 77 home versus Bueno Silva. Uh, got some good stuff on it. Look out for the preview Monday morning. Look out for I believe Keith and I are finally back together on uh, the recap afterwards. But between now and then, thank you guys so much for checking out the show. Thank you, Dev, for stepping up on short notice. Uh, this has been a fun hang. You guys are amazing. Chris Wiz, get out of my face with that weak stuff. Don't make me choose my favorite child because just like my real-life children, I do have a favorite, but I don't talk about it. Good night, guys. Bye, guys. Thanks.